It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In 2014, Julien Secheron realized there was something wrong with his eyesight. I was in a wedding, I got something wrong, you know, because of the light, because of the sun, and I didn't know what happened. So I go to the ophthalmologist, and he told me, can you read the letter? On the right eye, it was okay, I can read the letter normally. And then he go to the left eye, and I was unable to read one letter. It was just blank. Julian was 37 years old. His doctor diagnosed him with a very rare condition called Leber Hereditary Optic Neuropathy, or LHON. Okay, and what is the treatment? And the time is there is no treatment, and you're going to lose suddenly the sight in the right eye, and you're going to be very sightless. I say, okay, what is very sightless? You never be blind, okay? You never be in, in the black, but you're going to lose your sight on both eyes. And it was brutal in three months, and uh, your life changed. You cannot recognize your face. You cannot recognize the face of your wife. I was a consultant, but I cannot read the email. I cannot write the email. It's impossible to use your iPhone. You cannot see the traffic lights, so it's very dangerous to move on the streets. And suddenly, there is no future because no treatment. LHON is a genetic disorder caused by a mutation at a single point in a patient's DNA. There are thousands of individual rare diseases like this one caused by errors in a person's genetic code. Sometimes the symptoms of these diseases can be treated or managed, but cures, well, that's been too hard. What if scientists could somehow target the errors in the DNA itself? What if they could fix the mistakes in a person's genes? That would give someone like Julian a sliver of hope, not just for better treatments, but potentially for a cure. Gene therapy has been around as an idea for decades, but it's never quite lived up to its promise. Until now. This year, four new gene therapies have been approved around the world, and there are thousands of clinical trials underway. Could gene therapy have finally arrived? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist science correspondent. Today we'll be exploring the promise of gene therapy. This is a new class of drugs that's poised to finally offer cures for some rare inherited diseases. But this genetic revolution isn't certain. 
there are lots of technological and economic challenges ahead. Why, for example, are gene therapies so expensive? And what can be done to make them more accessible? Joining me to discuss all of this is Natasha Loder, The Economist's health policy editor. Thanks for coming along, Natasha. Thank you, Alan. Let's go through some basics. What is gene therapy and uh, how does it work? Well, gene therapies are medicines that deliver a corrective gene. And generally speaking, what you're trying to do is fix some sort of inherited genetic error. And the idea is that you package the corrective gene inside a vector, a virus, which then delivers that gene into the body where it manufactures the correct protein, the protein that was incorrect thanks to a genetic mutation. And it sounds incredibly transformative. And it's been something that I think scientists have been sort of going for for decades now and was something that I think people at the beginning of the sequencing of the human genome thought was just around the corner, gene therapy. How important is something like this for medicine? Well, it's hugely important and it is just the first step in what is going to be a new era of genetic medicines. But what we have in front of us right now is a technology that allows us to address what's called monogenetic diseases. And that's where you have a single error, a single mutation, a single broken gene, if you like. And there are tens of thousands of genes that can go wrong. Mutational errors crop up all the time and you have thousands of genetic diseases which potentially could be targeted with this kind of technology. What are these and what do they look like in the genome? One well-known rare disease is sickle cell anemia. This is where you have your blood cells, they are shaped like crescents, they're rigid and sticky and that slows down the blood flow and it's extremely painful and can reduce life expectancy. Another well-known genetic disorder is haemophilia. Um, there are several kinds of haemophilia, but basically it's where your blood fails to clot, something that can be extremely life-threatening if you have an accident. It was known as the royal disease, actually, as it afflicted inbred royalty in Europe more than 100 years ago. And then there's many, many other conditions, spinal muscular atrophy, a whole range of diseases, some of which are well-known, some of which are vanishingly rare. Another condition that's caused by a single gene mutation is LHON, Leber Hereditary Optic Neuropathy. That's the disease that affects the eyesight of Julian, who we heard from earlier. The uh, Leber Hereditary Optic Neuropathy, or LHON, is a mitochondrial disease of the retina. It is a, a very brutal and uh, a sudden disease that starts normally by the age of anywhere between 15 and 35 years of age. Bernard Gilly is the boss of Gensite Biologics, a gene therapy company. Patients will usually lose their sight very rapidly. It's a matter of days to weeks from being perfectly able to see to uh, being almost unable to read letters. They still keep some peripheral vision, but it's really a, a very tiny vision. The underlying cause of LHON is a defect in the gene, but it's important to note that it is in a gene that is not in the nucleus of the cells, as is the rest of our genome. It is a, a gene that is present in the mitochondrion. Mitochondrions are small organelles that are present in all our cells. And in fact, they are the powerhouse of the cell. They are 
providing the energy to the cell. And this is particularly true for neurons because neurons are consuming a lot of energy and our retina is, is made of neurons. In people with LHON, the mitochondria don't work properly. That means that the neurons in the retina at the back of the eye don't get enough energy to work. Retina is in fact unable to send the information to the brain and very rapidly the patients are turning blind. LHON is, is in fact a rare disease. And in this population of patients, there are three different mutations, but the, the most frequent one that represents about 75 to 80% of all these patients is called ND4. And this is this mutation that we are targeting at GeneSight. There are currently no widely approved treatments for LHON. And the medications Julien did try caused some unbearable side effects. They also proved unsuccessful. But then he was given the opportunity to take part in GenSight's gene therapy trial. I have the opportunity to have the treatment six months after I've been diagnostic. So it was in April 2015. I was patient number 15 in the world. I said, uh, what am I going to lose? I have nothing to lose to go to the treatment because I was unable to read only one letter on the ophthalmologic. I lost the color. I lost everything. I said, let's go for the treatment and we're going to see what happened. When I have the opportunity to have the treatment, in fact, for the patients, there is nothing to do. Just go to the hospital and um, just one injection. And after three months, I just go to the hospital for the test. And on the board, there is no letter. I don't recover color. I just say it to myself, um, oh, it does not work. We have this treatment. It was an opportunity, but it doesn't work. So three months after the injection, Julian still couldn't read letters. His sight hadn't improved. But that's not the end of the story. Six months later, I just go back to the hospital and on the left eye, which has been injected, I can see a three letter Z, G, U. Say, okay, well, something, something has happened. And nine months after, it was more and more later and I recover also color because I was crossing a street. And then I just have a look to the traffic lights. I say, oh, it's red, now it's green. I said, oh, I recover some color. It's day by day, month by month. It's not suddenly that you recover. And it's about two years after the injection on the left eye. I can see now on the ophthalmic board more than 32 letters. And the white eye, which has not been injected, I recover 24 letters. So it's about 10% on the eye injected and 5% on the eye which has not been injected. And I also recover some sight and the color. So it changed my life day after day, which is very important. Is that to say I have been injected in 2015. Now we are in 2022. So it's seven years after and all I have recovered, I never uh, lose it because I was afraid to say maybe I'm going to lose it. And we are seven years after the injection and I don't lose all I recover. 
Julian's progressive recovery lasted around two years. Other patients on the trial reported similar results. So far, the recovered site seems to be stable. Between the clinical trials and the compassionate use or the early access, we have treated uh, north of uh, 240 patients. 80% of these patients have recovered site. Uh, this is really remarkable. That's GenSight's boss, Bernard Gilly, again. When we treat the two eyes, the results are better, as there's no question. We demonstrated this through a clinical trial, so very, very likely the treatment will be done bilaterally once the market authorization will be given by the European Agency, which uh, is likely to happen next year. And I think we will move like this and try to increase the access for the treatment to uh, not only to European US patients, but also to the rest of the world. This is a disease that is present all over the world with more or less the same incidence in the various continents. So it is our, our duty to, uh, to make sure that we provide access to as many patients as possible. Natasha, uh, Julian's story there is uh, is really remarkable. It seems like the Gensite gene therapy. I mean, it, it, do I dare to use the word cure for that? Well, that's the fascinating question, isn't it? In theory, gene therapies are supposed to be curative, one and done, as people sometimes say. But we've not been able to watch people over their lifetime. So we don't actually know if these therapies will indeed last that long. I think it's fair to say, though, if Lumivoc that's the Gensite therapy, is approved. It is an absolutely transformative option for the 800 or so cases of LHON every year in America and Europe. The Gensite drug is, of course, just one gene therapy, but there actually have been quite a few new arrivals on the market in the last year, haven't there? Yeah, there have been a flurry of approvals this year. There's been a haemophilia A drug called Roctavian. There's been one for a disease called cerebral adrenoleukodystrophy, which is a sort of rapid loss of neurological function that's often fatal. Another blood disorder, beta thalassemia, has a treatment. And then there's a gene therapy called Upstaza, which is for a disease called AADC deficiency, which is a, a rare disorder of the nervous system. And we know that there are lots more on the way. According to scientists from the Centre for Biomedical Innovation in Cambridge, Massachusetts, there are enough trials now underway to expect about 40 to 50 new gene therapies to be approved for clinical use by 2030. So, I mean, it all looks incredibly positive, but um, let's dig into the history a bit. You know, gene therapy isn't a new idea, and there have been ups and downs in the past, which is why it's taken so long. Yes, indeed. The idea traces back decades and decades, and it was in 1990 that gene therapy was actually tried. A four-year-old girl, Ashanti de Silva, was lacking an enzyme called adenosine deanamase, a critical part of her immune system, and it gave her a disease called severe combined immunodeficiency, ADA-SCID. This is more widely known as the bubble baby syndrome, and this is where children have to be kept in clean environments. Anyway, 1990, she became the first patient to be given a gene therapy, and the successful results of that first trial led to more trials and more trials 
and the field started to take off. Now, there was a roadblock at the turn of the century when there was a death, very famously, of a a boy called Jesse Gelsinger during a trial. And his death was caused by his immune system's response to the adenovirus that had been used as the vector. In other words, a virus that was containing the working genes that were put into patients. So presumably since then, researchers have been looking for other vectors that don't cause such an immune reaction that might lead to something fatal. Exactly. And James Wilson, who was the gene therapy pioneer at the University of Pennsylvania, who was actually behind the Gelsinger trial, went on to discover the potential of the vectors that we use today, the adeno-associated viruses. They're very widespread in humans. They're not known to cause any sort of disease, and they really provoke very little immune response. And that's the sort of ideal vehicle, if you like, for delivering a gene into cells in the human body. And, you know, the other thing about AAVs is that they come in more than 100 different flavours known as serotypes. And that means that each one has different preferences when it comes to the sorts of cells that it likes to infect. And so tinkering with these serotypes is also one of the ways that we're developing improved targeting for these gene therapies. Because if you inject a gene therapy in the body, you ideally want it to infect the cells that are particularly badly affected. I mean, if you're dealing with, for example, a disease of motor neurons, then you obviously want those motor neurons to receive these genetic modifications, not other parts of the body. So have these AAVs reduced the problems associated with the adenovirus that's caused so many issues in in the 90s? So what you'll hear from researchers is they'll say, look, it's a very safe vector and it is absolutely vastly better than what they had before. But that doesn't mean that they are without side effects and adverse events. And in fact, a recent analysis of almost 150 gene therapy trials found that about 35% were seeing serious adverse events, including you know, brain imaging findings of uncertain significance, which was a little bit alarming, but we don't know what it means. We also know that large doses of the vector have also been linked to safety concerns. And I know in 2018, Dr. Wilson was warning that high doses of AAV were causing life-threatening toxicity in piglets and monkeys in trials. And we are seeing in a number of trials, liver-related problems, even deaths. And so, you know, this is something that we do need to keep an eye on. Now, although a lot of this does sound pretty alarming, there's several things you need to bear in mind. One is that, you know, many drugs have side effects. And the other thing is that the diseases that are being treated are very serious indeed. And so the level of risk that you'd be willing to take to treat a, a genetic disease that is, say, fatal is perhaps higher than something that you would have in routine use. Someone who knows about this risk-benefit analysis more than anyone is a woman called Karen Ayash. She's the founder of Lysagene, a French gene therapy firm, which concentrates its efforts on errors in the central nervous system. And I spoke to Karen when I was researching this story, and I was really struck by her description of how she ended up in the field. 
The first time I became aware of gene therapy was in uh, August 2005, a few days after my daughter had been diagnosed with San Filippo syndrome. And so I took an appointment with the team at the Pasteur Institute and what they were doing was gene therapy. So you were told your daughter had San Filippo. What did you understand about what was going to happen to her then? So the first information we received on this disease came from the doctor. He just said that's a lysosomal storage disease and it's a neurodegenerative. For us was a word associated until then with elder people associated to diseases like Alzheimer or Parkinson's disease. But in that case, it was very uh, shocking to hear that word. So I, I asked a few questions to the doctor and um, he gave small and short responses, such as she's not going to go to school or she's going to develop normally up until the age of two, three years of age. And so she will be able to go to kindergarten, but that's almost all. And then she will start to regress. And he would not say that the disease was lethal. And so I had to ask the question. Then he responded, uh, yes, that disease is... Uh, is going to uh, to take away your child from you probably in her mid-teens, if not earlier. So that's the first piece of information we got. And the second one came from the web. There we discovered the uh, horror of this disease and all of the uh, symptoms that would be associated with that. And we uh, realized that our lives would be transformed forever and that we would have to adapt everything in our daily life to the situation with Ornella. So you ended up bringing together doctors and scientists to design a gene therapy for San Filippo syndrome. Your daughter, Ornella, was the first person on the first clinical trial, wasn't she? Yes. And the treatment came quite late for Ornella, but it did help, is that right? Yes, that's right. It really changed her life and ours. After the first treatment, the first clinical study, her progress was very important with respect to sleeping disorders and hyperactivity. If I had not seen so much improvement on my own daughter, I would probably not have pursued the company. And so the only fact that I'm still on board years later, even after my daughter passed away, is really something which speaks uh, for itself, I believe. And uh, the battle we currently have is to make sure that the uh, regulatory agencies, we, we need them to stick to the principle of risk-benefit ratio. And recently, we've observed too much cautious, I would say, positions from certain agencies who tend to forget that we are dealing with very, very severe diseases and that what should drive the regulatory decisions is the risk-benefit ratio, especially as even though there is some concern about the safety of certain approaches in the gene therapy space, uh, these safety concerns are usually well addressed. And so I hope that there will not be too much severity there because we are talking of very, very severe diseases. Our patients have nothing available for them. And so we should be cautious not to uh, 
overburden the drug developers with disproportionate safety expectations. When you say that, you're presumably referring to the FDA. They've put some holds on some of these trials and they've taken a very cautious approach. Really, what you're saying is these are incredibly serious diseases. And so, you know, you need to consider what problems you're causing by creating a hold on a trial. But then you're also saying, you know, the more safety regulations that you put on these therapies, the more problems you're going to face bringing them to market, right? Because you just push up cost as well. Yes, that's right. So Natasha, Karen was very clear there that the net effect of gene therapies, at least for her, is positive, right? Yeah, she's creating medicines for terrible, terrible diseases for which there is no other option. Now, of course, there's more to think about when it comes to gene therapies than just safety concerns. Another huge problem, of course, is that these could burn huge holes in the pockets of patients and healthcare systems. So coming up, we'll explore why gene therapies are so expensive and what, if anything, can be done about it. But before we go into all of that, I'm going to take a quick pause to encourage you to read more about gene therapies in The Economist. Natasha's piece, which we've been talking about, is available online and on our app. It's definitely worth a read. Natasha, what else have you been reading recently from our colleagues at The Economist when you're not talking about gene therapies and other life-changing medicines? Well, I very much enjoyed the piece on quantum entanglement. And I was also pretty interested in the article we had on the need for better medicines in pain relief. Yeah, both things are interesting. The quantum entanglement one, of course, was the Nobel Prize, which was awarded last week to a trio of physicists for understanding quantum entanglement. One of the weirdest things in physics and incredibly difficult to get a head around in two hours, which I had to do when writing that piece. Uh, so thank you for that, for reading it, Natasha. I don't know who else read it. And now, to read all of that, get your best introductory subscription offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. Natasha and I will be back shortly. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Today on Babbage, we're talking about gene therapy. Natasha Loder, The Economist's health policy editor, is here with me. Earlier, Natasha and I explored the promise of these new treatments for rare diseases, as well as how to navigate the various safety concerns. Natasha, something we haven't talked about yet are the costs of gene therapies. They're really, really, really expensive, aren't they? I mean, eye-wateringly so. One of the people I spoke to described the pricing of these therapies as a crisis. Typically, they're in the millions of dollars. The first one on the market in 2012 then had a price tag of a million. That was Glibera, which addressed an error in the way that fat is processed. 
And at the time, it was seen as just so expensive that nobody wanted to pay for it, and it was taken off the market. Roll forward, and in 2019, Zolgensma, which is Novartis's treatment for spinal muscular atrophy, went on sale for $2.1 million. That has been bought quite widely, and there's Libmeldi, which was approved a couple of years ago, And that's for a disorder which degrades the nervous system. And again, we're talking about $3 million just for a single dose. And there are many, many more cases like this. And so gene therapies are coming in at between 2 and $3 million each. And given that we don't know if these are things that are going to have to be just given once or more times in the future, that could be quite a lot over the course of a lifetime. Why are they so expensive? Well, one of the reasons is that there's a particularly high cost of goods associated with this therapy. They are really difficult to manufacture. You need these giant, giant vats to cook up the vectors. And, you know, you can have this giant vat and get only one dose of the medicine out of it. And analysts at the Boston Consulting Group recently estimated the cost of manufacturing gene therapies ranges from about 100,000 to 500,000 per dose. That still doesn't explain the cost of some of these drugs. And to understand that, you need to understand that they have been very expensive to develop. Okay, very difficult technology, very complicated manufacturing. Why are companies even interested in making them then? I mean, it sounds like it's something that would be very difficult to make money from. Yeah, some firms have found it difficult to make money. And in fact, Bluebird Bio withdrew from the European market recently because they just couldn't come to an agreement on price with the German government. And you see this again and again in the sort of history of development of gene therapies. That said, sometimes countries do pay for them. And one good example is Zolgensma, which has been bought in rich countries. There has been some uptake. Novartis seems to be making money out of it. And then there's also the potential in some diseases where high cost of a gene therapy could offset costs elsewhere. And so, for example, if you are without sight, that places quite a burden on society. So it is beneficial to correct that lack of sight. If you are suffering from haemophilia and you're relying on really expensive clotting agents, it may be worthwhile to have a one-off treatment for haemophilia through a gene therapy. The concern I have is that what we've managed to create is a miracle for a small number of people in very rich countries. And we know that diseases like sickle cell afflict people across the globe. And the question is, how do we make these available? Because one of the benefits of a one-and-done treatment is that you don't need infrastructure to deliver them, really. You know, you can just take the therapies out into remote regions and treat people. And, and of course, if you don't get the single gene disorders price fixed, then gene therapy has no chance to solve even more complicated problems in the future. And there's no R&D for that. Well, this is exactly right. So one of the ways that this technology is going to develop is that we're going to start finding ways of correcting errors in more than one gene. We're going to find ways of tackling infectious diseases, perhaps by introducing genes that make you resistant, say, to HIV. 
But as you start to think of cases like these, you're talking about a huge patient population. And so you have to figure out how to make these treatments at scale. And that's essential, really, if we're to sort of realise the true promise of this idea. So let's talk about something positive then. What can people do to actually start reducing the costs? Well, this most important of issues is a question I wanted to start to address in my reporting. And I spoke to Mike McCune, who leads the HIV Frontiers Initiative at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And they're aiming to develop and deliver a cure for HIV one day. Our goal is to be able to deliver a single shot in and out, ideally in an outpatient clinic, that will modify a long-lived blood-forming cell in the body in a manner that will confer either clinical benefit against sickle or clinical benefit against HIV to anybody that has those diseases anywhere in the world. How are you trying to make these gene therapies accessible? I mean, on the one hand, one could imagine that whatever the cost of goods might be, that we might take the traditional approach towards tiered pricing, where high-income countries supporting for-profit companies would pay one price that's high, and that would subsidize, if you will, a lower price in low- and middle-income countries. Another approach would be to develop a more effective partnership between for-profit companies and high-income countries, governments, payers, key stakeholders, communities in low- and middle-income countries, one that would facilitate decentralization and democratization of production and, and distribution in such a way that the countries most affected by these diseases can provide better health care for all down the road. That, that is the vision I think that we need to have. Is it going to happen this year? No. It's going to take time. It's not going to be easy. But the discussion has started. This will be not modifying the way in which we do drug development and distribution in the future, but really blowing it up and coming up with new models altogether, I think. So if your new model did come to pass, what impact would that have on low and middle income countries? I mean, could a gene therapy end up being cheaper than current medicines? Well, let's just take the instance of HIV. 38 million people with HIV living around the world today. Most of those live in low and middle income countries, but roughly 2 million live in high income countries. And many of those individuals are taking antiretroviral therapy that's required on a daily basis for the rest of their lives. And if, believe me, there is a single shot cure for HIV that can be used in Uganda, the price ultimately will be lower than that for highly active antiretroviral therapy. And and we think if the gene therapy is durable and safe, much more effective on a population basis for two reasons. One, it will durably protect the individual who is affected by HIV in such a manner that they do not get sick and die. Secondly, those who are not treated for HIV in a way that is effective do not have viral loads that are low and they will transmit virus to others. So to have a accessible, affordable, durable way to suppress viremia protects not only the patient, but also those that might be uh, infected by that individual. We don't mean by any means at all that to say that this single shot therapy would only be available for those in low and middle income countries. It would certainly be available and paid for by hopefully more equitable practices than exist even today in high income countries. So Natasha, Mike there was quite positive about making gene therapies accessible 
if they turn out to be as useful as promised. What's your take on that optimism? Well, I mean, there's a long road between here and there. Fundamental issues like manufacturing costs, obviously, are what remain to be tackled. You've got to bring the cost down, you know, more than 50-fold. Mike told me that in countries where antiretroviral therapy for AIDS costs between 70 and 200 a year, if you're going to come in and bring an all-out cure for disease, you're going to need to have something that's priced at $2,000 or less. So that's a real mountain to climb from where we are today. You mentioned that one of the reasons why gene therapies are so expensive is just the manufacturing. They take up a lot of time, effort and expense to manufacture. And so there must be routes through there to improve that, to make these things less expensive, right? There are firms who are trying to develop vectors that are easier and cheaper to make. There's also the possibility of using vector-less methods. And so if you look at how gene editing is developing with a technology called CRISPR, this is a sort of editing package that you introduce into cells which can make corrections for you. These technologies which can be introduced using lipid nanoparticles, may provide a much cheaper way of making corrections to genetic disorders or making multiple corrections to genes in the body. But that's still at an early stage of development, unfortunately. All right, well, Natasha, just to conclude then, at the beginning of our conversation, I was kind of excited that the gene therapy is just around the corner and that after decades of hoping and trying and complexity that these things are, are on the way. But we just outlined lots and lots of future avenues for research, should I say, uh, that still <laughs> need to be sorted out. And I guess it's hard for me to even try and assess whether we are going to really see these sorts of amazing therapies turn up in the next few decades. Or is it just going to be a mountain that's going to continue to be climbing? So you get over the peak and turns out that there's another Everest just in front of you. <laughs> wh wh where do you see it going? Well, look, on the one hand, we know that for monoclonal antibodies over a 10-year period, improvements in manufacturing brought a 50-fold reduction in the cost of goods. Monoclonal antibodies are the sort of biologic drugs, if you like, that treat things like rheumatoid arthritis. And so on the face of it, we could dramatically reduce the cost. But on the other hand, you know, what I'm hearing from the industry is that they want a different payment model, that they want a way to afford these high prices and to keep paying them. And in other words, they're saying, well, you know, you need to pay over a number of years and therefore you sort of amortize the cost of these high prices over a number of years. And that's fine to a point. But if you create a payment system that keeps paying these high prices, what worries me is that you will remove the incentive to actually lower the cost of goods and make these therapies cheaper. So what will happen? I don't know. I mean, it's a combination of economics and politics and who knows. It sounds like the innovations are not going to just have to be scientific, but also economics. So someone who's going yes. to win a future Nobel Prize in economics <laughs> is going to have to work out a way of making these incredibly useful drugs work, economically speaking, as well as scientifically speaking. Yeah, and let's not rule out the philanthropists and the charity sector. You know, they have a real interest in trying to make these therapies cheaper. So it may not just be down to pharma companies. Okay, Natasha, thank you very much indeed. Such a fascinating topic. Thank you, Alok. 
Our thanks also to Julien Secheron, Bernard Gilly, Karen Ayash, and Mike McHugh. And thank you for listening to Babbage. Don't forget that you can read Natasha's full essay on gene therapy at economist.com. That article contains lots more details on the companies at the forefront of this revolution and the kinds of diseases that they're trying to treat. The link to that piece and the link to subscribe to The Economist is in the show notes. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Jha and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.